Welcome, everyone. I'm Stan the Rhino Efforting, the world's strongest pro bodybuilder, and you're listening to the History of Strength Sports Podcast. Hi, everyone. Jacob here from the History of Strength Sports. Welcome to episode three of the podcast. Um, what you're about to hear is something slightly different from the usual. We've actually got a guest episode from the No Lift podcast, which is a phenomenal show hosted by Irish powerlifter Arthur Lynch. Um, and when I heard this episode myself, I was absolutely blown away with the scale and the depth of the topics that these guys covered around the history of steroids and performance enhancing drugs. So it's a wildly popular topic. And we thought um, that we'd bring that to you today from, from these guys. So at some point, we'd planned on covering this topic ourselves. But having heard this episode, I'm not sure that we could have actually done a better job. And if we tried, it would have likely been a Cliff Notes version of, of what you're about to hear. So we thought we'd bring it to you in full from them. So on this episode, Arthur was joined by Dr. Connor Heffernan, who's the assistant professor at the University of Texas, and he specialized in the history of physical culture. He also runs a really good website called, uh, called physicalculturestudy.com, which has been a really invaluable research, uh, research resource for us over at the History of Strength Sports. Um, he's an incredible speaker on all things related to physical culture and strength history, so we hope have on our own podcast actually at some point in the near future um, the other voice you'll hear in this episode is a chap called Alex Colliari Turner and he's a researcher based out of the University of Brighton in the UK with a special interest in the history and mechanisms behind steroids and performance enhancing drugs um, and you'll hear for, you, for yourself um, the depth of his knowledge on steroids um, and the amounts of research and, and sort of the, the widespread um, scale and, and understanding of the topic he have he has um, so it's a great lineup of guests, and we're happy to bring this to you today. Um, it's quite a long one, so we decided to split it into two parts, uh, roughly at the midpoint where the conversation slightly changes course. Um, I'm not going to give you too much, uh, too many spoilers at this point, um, but tune into both parts, and I promise you won't be won't be disappointed with it. Um, you know, it's funny. There's a saying that I heard when I started uh, the History of Strength Sports podcast. It was talking about the fact that it's better to host a party than just turn up and uh, turn up and try and add to the conversation, and that's really what we're trying to do here. Um, you know, we acknowledge that there are that there are experts in these niches of, of strength history with greater knowledge than than us at this point. So we want to bring it all to you um, as the listener in a package you'll find obviously both both entertaining and informative. So. Yeah, thanks again to Arthur, Connor, and Alex for uh, letting us um, reuse this episode for for the History of Strength Sports podcast. And here we go with the episode. This is a blood sport, and if you want blood, you got it! Back, 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 take it, take it, take it! Welcome to the No Lift Podcast. Coming to you from Ireland, hosted by Arthur Lynch. Okay, welcome back to another episode of the No Lift podcast with myself, Arthur Lynch. And to say I'm excited for this episode would be the understatement of the century. Yeah, this is this is something that I've been planning for a few weeks and uh, I've been probably thinking about it a little bit every day. I've been that excited about it. We're bringing back Connor Heffernan once again onto the show, and and we also have Alex Colliari Turner, a PhD researcher from the University of Brighton, isn't it? That's correct. Good job, memory. And uh, <laughs> well, what else is there to say? We're we're going to talk about the history of steroids and performance enhancing drugs with two really 
qualified individuals and and probably two of the best people you could you could get to to discuss this topic so i'm going to shut up now because uh my excitement is just getting in the way of me being anyway coherent guys how are you both doing today yeah doing really well so thank you for this opportunity uh again arthur and i will apologize to alex um in advance because i'm a historian of this so i have no knowledge whatsoever of what actually happens uh when steroids enter the body so expect Many, many ignorant statements for me that will have you bang your head off the wall, Alex. No, uh, I'm doing well, thank you, Arthur. I'm happy to be here as well and excited to yeah, talk a bit more about the history of steroids and uh, their usage in sports. Yeah, so so what I, I kind of decided beforehand to do with this would be probably best to break it up based on the timeline. We can we can kind of break it into different decades and you know, there's, there's different uh, advances and different developments throughout the 20th century that are all pretty noteworthy and pretty key events along this timeline. So let's take it from the very beginning, lads. First question I'm going to throw out to whoever wants to take it. When were the very first attempts to create synthetic testosterone? So maybe I can throw it out and then Alex, you you can uh, follow up with the much more informed answer. I suppose one of the things to note about kind of the first efforts is that in theory, this is a decades long, if not centuries long approach because we have evidence of people say in ancient e- or ancient Athens eating bull testicles because they think that it will increase their strength and muscularity so there is sort of like a centuries-long human approach to try some sort of stimulant that will actually improve their strength and muscularity and athleticism as we go into the 20th century and we have advances in say chemistry and biology in particular we start to see more kind of nuanced attempts to create some sort of synthetic so looking at say Dr. Terry Todd's work who's published an article on the use of anabolic steroids in sport. He cites the 1920s as a key period. I'm not sure if Alex um, would have more insight into that, but Dr. Todd in particular cites Fred Koch, who is an organic chemist at the University of Chicago, who alongside with his graduate assistant at the time, uh, Clyde McGee, were able to isolate a very impure, but nevertheless potent form of testosterone, which is then kind of improved upon in the US side of things. So. My idea of it would be, say, the 1920s, and then it becomes more nuanced in the 1930s, and then certainly by the 1940s, when in mid-1940s, Paul de Croft publishes The Male Hormone, which is kind of one of these seminal works in terms of, say, synthetic drugs or people having knowledge of it. I suppose that, that, that's what I have from the I suppose, history of sports side of things or history of um, bodybuilding, which is where my expertise would be. I'm wondering, I suppose, Alex probably will have more insight into how we get from Fred Koch to Baldacruff in that kind of 20 year period. Uh, yeah, my understanding was in the early 1930s as well in Germany, that was where the first research comes. Some of the first research papers was published on the synthesis of testosterone from cholesterol. And uh, there were two separate groups that published two separate papers on the synthesis of testosterone. And um, Pretty much from 1937, my understanding was that's when the first uh, clinical trials on exogenous testosterone on humans uh, with injectable testosterone propionate being used um, in Germany were being conducted as they were trying to treat men with hypogonadism, so clinically deficient in testosterone and impotency as well. Um, And that's where they also started to administered testosterone to women as well and started to note some of the side effects uh, of 
females getting androgenized and uh, you know their hair growth, the lowering of the voice, and uh, did, you know changes to their physique that were essentially making them much more masculine. And that's where we first started getting the note about uh, these problem problematic effects of steroid usage in, in women. And and then you say in the forties, that's when the this male hormone comes out that is then starting to actually suggest that people could actually take testosterone not if they're clinically deficient in testosterone, but just to increase their muscle mass for it's to rejuvenate them and to even elevate their work capacity. And that's when I understand DeCroft sort of cited as one of the first people to speculate, imagine what would happen if you gave athletes testosterone in a systematic manner to try and improve their performance. And then as we're then in the 1940s, that's when that starts to happen. Um, in the West Coast bodybuilding scene, which you probably know a bit more than I do, Connor, about that, as that's where you start to see the people sort of self-experimenting with these testosterone preparations on themselves um, in the early, in the late 1940s and the early 1950s. Yeah, Does that line I, up with when when you when uh, the bodybuilding scene starts to get their hands on steroids? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, a key. Um, phrase that you use is kind of self-experimentation because there is this weird nexus of people using say anabolic steroids and performance enhancing drugs that they're getting from physicians and then starting to self-experiment so in terms of say the bodybuilding scene that's intimately related to weightlifting and olympic weightlifting because we know say that the ussr the soviet weightlifting team um, was believed to have used some form of testosterone or anabolic steroids at the 52 olympic games the U.S. weightlifting coach Bob Hoffman comes back to the U.S. and says to reporters, quote, I know they're taking the hormone stuff in terms of in explaining why the Soviets have become more strong and more muscular than people had realized. By the mid-1950s, the U.S. Olympic uh, weightlifting doctor, Dr. Don, Dr. John Ziegler, um, is producing his own form of kind of anabolic steroids in the form of Dianabol after having a conversation with the Soviet physician after the 1954 World Weightlifting Championships, where the Soviet physician kind of gives him a little bit too much information. So Dr. John Ziegler is then able to create his own anabolics. By the mid-1950s to late 1950s, Dr. John Ziegler has produced Dianabol with Ciba Pharmaceutical Company. That is being used first for patients with muscle wasting diseases, but second, he's given it to York Barbell weightlifters. So we have two strains in the United States where bodybuilders are experimenting kind of using the male hormone as a handbook or a guidebook, but then weightlifters and then in time bodybuilders are actually getting like for the time relatively potent uh, Danabal from Dr. John Ziegler, from York Barbell and from Bob Hoffman. So the male hormone is a really important um, Bible or how to, or, you know, testosterone for dummies in the 1950s. But I think more important is probably D Dr. John Ziegler, Danabal and that link between Ziegler and York Barbell and kind of the Bob Hoffman um, world or sphere of weightlifting slash bodybuilding slash powerlifting. And I think, I know Danabol isn't the only um, steroid that's produced in the mid to late 1950s, but I think in terms of bodybuilding and weightlifting in the US, it's one of the more important ones because it, you know, it has that ease of access to weightlifters through Bob Hoffman and York Barbell. But I think I'm correct in saying, Alex, that that's not the only anabolic steroid that's produced in the 1950s it's probably more the brand the brand name if i'm right uh yes and also that uh 
I mean, it, it can be taken orally, so that was a benefit, and that it was supposed to as well. Um, they they wanted the effects of testosterone, but without some of the androgenic side effects of testosterone, and so and also potentially to use a drug that didn't involve injections, and so Dianabol being orally available, and um, available on prescription as well by Ziegler. There was something that you could give to people. And um, my understanding at that point was, um, you know, Ziegler would write prescription for these athletes. They would just go to a pharmacy and get their prescription filled, but they were prescribing athletes 10 milligrams a day, um, which is uh, a very low amount of Dianabol. And I've read research studies where they said Ziegler prescribed uh, Dianabol to the entire United States Olympic weightlifting team in Rome in 1960. And um, Ziegler as well, because of his involvement here with Bob Hoffman and the York Barbell Club, it wasn't just the weightlifters that uh, necessarily were getting their hands on steroids, it was other people there as well. And those people potentially were then going on to become strength and conditioning coach uh, in different places around the country and were then moving. And then they were taking their secret with them that Diana Bowl had given them such performance enhancement and uh, Ziegler himself actually I I paid to uh, read an article online that interviewed him before his death and this is in 1984 and I think it was a local newspaper to him and he said that uh, this is a direct quote that he wishes to God that he'd never done it and that he could uh, he'd like to go back and take that whole chapter out of his life because by the time Ziegler died in the mid eighties, um, you know, high school children had uh, passed away from complications, potentially linked to anabolic steroid usage. And people definitely at that point are taking far more than 10 milligrams of Dianabol a day. And um, he says that it was all those young kids. He said, what a terrible price they would pay. And if only I known it would come to this. And so you know, he kind of knew uh, what he had done and uh, and his prescription of steroids to athletes and those athletes then spreading that knowledge then changed the, the usage of drugs in sport uh, from that point onwards and he kind of knew the impact he'd had and actually uh, regretted it because of the spread of usage that he ended up causing and something that he never would have anticipated to happen because they were using steroids in a, in a legal way uh, they were old enough to, to, to be taking st to steroids a prescription. Although, as you said, Danabol was supposed to be used for burn victims and for people that had clinical muscle wasting diseases. And yet it got to the point where high school children were using them and, and Ziegler regretted his, his role and his part in causing potentially that to happen. So, uh, yeah, that's around the time of the late 1950s and the 1960s where Danabol was getting, getting used um, and uh, was it was probably quite limited to strength sports at that time. And uh, we know the Americans were using it because of Ziegler, and we know the Soviets were using testosterone preparations as well, but it hadn't necessarily spread to lots of other sports. The steroids necessarily hadn't spread to lots of other sports, and that would come in time. Actually, something, sorry to cut, cut across, Arthur, something I'm wondering if you could maybe highlight is, when did the scientific community know that these things were useful? Because when you look at bodybuilding and weightlifting, there's really strange kind of anecdotes in the 1950s where people are saying, well, I'm taking Danabal, but 
I'm also doing isometric training. I'm taking Bob Hoffman's high protein. I'm doing hypnosis. So I'm not sure if I'm getting stronger and more muscular because of the steroids or if it's because I'm doing all of these different things. And we even have some weightlifters saying, well, I took it and it actually made me weaker. You know, like there's a lot of um, discrepancies surrounding whether or not people thought they were effective. And I know some of the earlier studies were corrupted because people were actually selling the steroids that they're meant to be given, giving to the participants. So I'm wondering, when is the consensus? Because I know in the popular media in the US, for example, in the 60s, there are still articles on, you know, are steroids actually useful for athletes? But then there are bodybuilders, weightlifters, and powerlifters who know that this is the next kind of chemical stage in getting bigger and stronger. So when is a scientific community reaching a consensus? Is it the late 60s, early 70s, or is it kind of around oh, Ziegler's time? much later than that because my understanding is 1977 the american college of sports medicine they published a position paper that said there was no conclusive evidence that anabolic steroids could aid an athlete performance and there was a lot of confusion in the scientific and medical community at the time if taking steroids is actually performance enhancing would actually result in more muscle mass and strength and a lot of the studies conducted at that time were very poorly designed they were uh, not double blind they're not placebo controlled they were not m controlling the athlete's food intake they were not necessarily controlling the athlete's training and they potentially were giving them too low of a dose of steroids in an intervention study in the period of time that they were giving them the drugs to try and observe a notable effect in size or strength and um, so there was a lot of um, a lot of unknowns whether or not that uh, it was decided if they were effective Ten years later, in the late 80s, the American College of Sports Medicine did retract its position statement and did concede that they were effective. But it still said that they were rather uh, sceptical about this. And uh, they said that it was not obviously exhibited by all individuals, these performance-enhancing effects of steroids. And in the scientific literature anyway, it's not until um, the sort of famous testosterone administration study by Chandelier Basin in 1996, published in the uh, new journal England uh, um, Journal of Medicine. I probably said the journal wrong there, but it's a very famous medical journal. And uh, that was where they gave people testosterone and uh, and also trained them in a in a double-blind placebo-controlled manner and conclusively showed that testosterone administration does increase muscle mass and performance where they tested them with their barbell back squat and bench press and they got if my memory serves me correctly i think they got like a 40 kilo increase in their squat and a 20 kilogram increase in their bench press and um and there was also quite a, fam a famous study for showing that if you gave out gave testosterone to people who don't resistance train they still actually get an increase in muscle mass um, but then if you resistance train them and you give them anabolic steroids, then they get much greater uh, increase in muscle mass and in strength. Um, so, and it's also at that point, because there's such confusion in the 70s and the 80s about anabolic steroids actually being performance enhancing, but it being relatively obvious to athletes that if they take anabolic steroids, they get an increase in strength and performance. That some, some authors that are involved in the kind of um, harm reduction and the side effects and the health impacts of taking steroids say this is where steroid users as a population in the community get alienated by the medical community because the steroid users are 
taking this drug that's obviously to them performance enhancing, but the medical community is saying, well, they make no difference and they won't enhance your performance. And uh, sort of at that point where some people say that there's this distrust between the steroid using community and the medical community and trusting their opinion, because it, how can they not believe that anabolic steroids are performance enhancing? So then why would the steroid using population believe what the medical community, community would say about the side effects and the impacts of anabolic steroids on their health or things that you could take to reduce their health impacts? And so um, that's where they say there's this, this problem here where they're, they're not speaking to each other, these, these two populations, as they just because of this lack of evidence and this lack of these concrete studies that haven't shown this link between the performance enhancing effect and usage. But that comes much, much later. Well, lads, thanks for shitting all over my lovely outline. I guess we'll wrap it up there. So uh, <laughs> no, I'm only joking. That, that was absolutely fantastic. But there, there are some details there that uh, uh, I'd like to get into in a little bit more detail. And one individual that kind of sticks out to me as being really key in the in the progression of this whole timeline is Dr. John Ziegler. And as you were mentioning there, Connor, about how the kind of there was a bit of mystery around the time when he was prescribing, you know, the the blue pill as it were, you know, because he was he was advocating for isometric training and positive thinking hypnotherapy and all this kind of stuff as well. So there was actually a period where guys were like, uh, I'm not really sure if this is doing a whole lot because it's being thrown in with this proprietary blend, if you like, to, to borrow a term there, um, of, of all these other different things that he was, he was uh, doing with people that would, that would come to him. He, he eventually became a bit of a guru, I, I, I guess you could nearly say. But can we talk a little bit more about him and uh, particularly kind of late 50s, early 60s and what he did and the mark that he left on weightlifting and then bodybuilding. Yeah, so as you mentioned, as Alex did a, a really good job of explaining, Ziegler is one of these really interesting individuals who is trying to help weightlifting in the United States. Because I think, Arthur, we've talked about this before. In the 1940s and 1950s, the US is looking at weightlifting the same way Rocky Balboa looks at boxing in Rocky IV. It is a representation of American exceptionalism and American greatness. And if Rocky can beat Ivan Drago, if the US can beat the USSR and other teams on the Olympic platform, that is a sign of American exceptionalism and American greatness. And this isn't me kind of you know, boosting up my current host nation. This is kind of the rhetoric that's stemming from Bob Hoffman, who is the US weightlifting coach. And Hoffman is someone who is attunely interested in improving US weightlifting. When it becomes clear in the early to mid-1950s that the Soviet Union are not only a challenger to the U.S., but potentially going to overtake them in weightlifting, Hoffman and his team, which will include Ziegler, go on high alert. They want to figure out what they can do next. So when we think about Ziegler and Danibal, which is kind of the creation of a conversation that Ziegler and a Soviet uh, counterpart have in a bar in 1954, when Ziegler comes back and is trialing this out, Hoffman is also trialing isometric training, isometric training, pardon me, hypnosis and protein supplements, because he thinks that one of these things will be the key route to improving US weightlifting. I think out of the four of those, we can probably think it's definitely positive thinking, because if you can believe it, you can achieve it. Now, we know that anabolic steroids are the kind of key ingredient in that, because the Soviets are taking them from 1952. But what happens is two things. First, there is a 
uncertainty surrounding the actual impact that Dianabo will have. But second, Bob Hoffman, and by virtue of this Ziegler, are caught up in commercialism. Because Hoffman not only is the US weightlifting coach, but he's the founder, owner, CEO, entrepreneur of York Barbell. York Barbell also sells Strength and Health magazine. York Barbell also has its own nutritional supplement wing, which emerges in the mid-1950s. So as Hoffman is trying to explain to people why the Soviets are stronger than the US in some divisions, he's also explaining how the US are going to overtake the Soviets. He is also looking at his bottom dollar. So what happens is Hoffman will start to sell high protein, H-I-P-R-O-T-E-E-N, a protein powder in the mid to late 1950s that he will say will increase a York weightlifter's muscle mass by 18 to 20 to 30 pounds. This, incidentally, is the same time that York barbell weightlifters are taking anabolic steroids. Their weight is increasing, Hoffman is correct in asserting that, but it is not increasing because of high protein, which by all accounts is one of the foulest tasting supplements ever produced. Similarly, Hoffman writes an article in Strength and Health magazine, and I can't remember the exact title, but it's effectively along the lines of the greatest discovery I've ever made with regards to improving one's strength and muscle mass. Again, it's not about the little blue pill, it's not about Danival, it's about isometric training. Because Hoffman will now sell books on isometric tra- training, he will, spe- he will sell you know, specially rigged squat racks or power racks that you can do isometric training for your bench, your squat, your deadlift, etc. So part of the uncertainty does stem from that natural scientific uncertainty, which Alex laid out really well, where you know, they're not giving enough Dianabol, they're not actually using rigid scientific studies, so they can't say with clarity what it does yet, but also the fact that it's brought into this proprietary blend, as you say, that is influenced, dictated, corrupted, whatever words you want to use, by the virtues of free market capitalism, because Hoffman's trying to sell supplements that will give steroid-like effects, and Hoffman will actually be prosecuted and charged by the Federal Drug Administration in the mid-1960s for the outlandish claims he's making about his supplements. He is not incorrect to say that some of his weightlifters and bodybuilders are enjoying massive gains in strength and muscle, but he is incorrect in saying that it's from his protein powders. He is not incorrect in saying that isometric training seems to be increasing the strength of some of his lifters, because again, Arthur, as I'm sure you know in powerlifting, there is some value in isometric training, especially at a more maximal level of your, of your capacity. But he is dressing up and promoting protein supplements, positive thinking and hypnosis, isometric training as the trifecta of improving one's strength and muscularity. And as Alex says, you know, we have a secrecy around anabolic steroids in the United States in the you know, late 1950s, early 1960s. And Ziegler is part of that as well, because he is attached to Bob Hoffman. Hoffman is a very powerful individual, especially in regards to US weightlifting, powerlifting, and bodybuilding. Ziegler is attempting to you know, produce a, a treatment of some value in terms of muscle wasting, but is also trying to improve the strength and muscularity of US weightlifters. So I think part of the problem with anabolic steroids, and, and I'd like to get Alex's thoughts on this as well, is that its discovery and introduction into the US, for example, is just corrupted and influenced by US-Soviet rivalries in the sport of weightlifting, but then also the commercialism of American fitness at this time. So what I mean by this is it's not a neutral discovery in a laboratory or in, you know, um, in a small cohort of scientists. It's a discovery that's made that is immediately being put to use in a kind of sporting capacity. 
I think that maybe leads to a lot of confusion and problems in the long run with this. No, I'd agree, but also at that point, no one's breaking any laws. Yes, no one's so. not only breaking any American law, but taking the drugs, prescribing the drugs, acquiring the drugs. No one's breaking any sport rules as well, because there's no notion of prohibited performance-enhancing drugs being banned at the level of the competition that these people are competing in. And as you know, Ziegler could tell that the Soviets were taking this hormone stuff, and that's why they were beating them. But there was no rule written down anywhere that you could not do this. So it was against the ethics of the sport or um, even the laws of their country at the time. So there, it, it was, you know, fully legal to be in their repertoire of uh, techniques to try to increase strength, even if it is potentially unhealthy for the athletes that were taking them. Um, they definitely weren't breaking any laws at the time. Yeah, and actually, just on that, there's a wonderful quote. It's kind. Of, sorry, Arthur, to shit on your timeline no, again. But no, the, you're fine. There's a wonderful quote from the early 1970s. Ken Patera, who's an amazing super heavyweight um, weightlifter for the US, tells reporters right before the 1972 games that he's done all the training, he's done all, he's eaten all he can, he's done everything he can. So he's going to take on Vasily Alexiev, the wonderful Soviet weightlifter, and quote, "When I hit Munich next year, I'll weigh in about 340, maybe 350. Then we'll see which are better." His steroids are mine. And this is Ken Patera telling that to the US press right before the 1972 Olympic Games. And no one bats an eyelid. They're rooting for Ken Patera. They're like, yeah, yeah, we'll see whose steroids are better. Ours are the Soviets. So yeah, Alex is right that when they come out, when they're being um, promulgated and promoted, it isn't illegal. You can get a prescription. There are no ethical concerns for it at the time because no sporting organization has come out in the 50s and 60s to say, don't do this or don't use this because it is this new terrain. And I think people have to catch up with that. So yeah, they are legal. They are free to use. Um, and you are getting them from a physician, which as I'm sure we'll go into, isn't always the case when it comes to anabolic steroids in the US, for example. Just to broaden the focus ever so slightly for a few minutes uh, to more, I suppose, IOC sports or Alex, in the period of like 1960s to 1970s, what sort of events take place or transpire to change what we've just talked about the 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 attitudes towards not necessarily even steroids but performance enhancing drugs in sports generally there's a fantastic paper uh on the history of doping written by somebody called arnie lunkvist who was a pro vice chancellor of the karolinska institute and was heavily involved in um the ioc for many many years uh he's still alive actually and um uh, in his paper, he talks about in 1960, a day in the Rome Summer Olympic Games, which was the first games to be televised to a live audience. Uh, very sadly, a Danish cyclist died uh, and collapsed and died during the team road race. And his name was Nud Enmark uh, Jensen. And this is where uh, it gets a little bit difficult about whether or not performance enhancing drugs uh, definitely contributed to his death or not but uh, because his post-mortem was never made publicly available but the Danish Public Health Board who said they have seen this post-mortem report they confirmed that his death was solely caused by heat stroke and that were no substances found inside his body but there were rumors that performance enhancing drugs did play a role in his uh, him collapsing, falling off his bike and passing away. And uh, 
the IOC and the, Internet, the International Olympic Committee, they'd started to verbalise at this point that drugs were potentially being used at the Olympics, but they hadn't actually done anything to combat it per se. And uh, there's allegations that one of the Italian professors who carried out the post-mortem uh, on this Danish cyclist who passed away during the Olympics, um, that they found uh, the presence of amphetamines in his body. But there's no official statement that confirms this allegation, or nor has it been explained why this information was excluded from uh, his post-mortem report. But um, they do confirm that he had been given a vasodilator, um, but there's never been an official statement that's been released to confirm that allegation. And it's never been explained as to why that piece of information was omitted from the uh, post-mortem report that the Danish Public Health Board said they have seen. Uh, there's an author called Paul Dimio who's written a fantastic article about uh, the death of this cyclist and whether or not performance-enhancing drugs did cause his death or not. So we can't say 100% for sure that it did happen, but the rumours are that he was using performance-enhancing drugs and that contributed to his death alongside light heat stroke and uh, um you know, maybe dehydration as well, just cycling in the Italian sun, you know, during the Summer Olympic Games. Um, but someone passing away to a live audience on during the Olympic Games um, is uh, a tragedy. And also, if it's linked potentially to performance-enhancing drug usage, um, is not very good for the publicity of the International Olympic Committee that uh, these athletes are trying to beat each other and sort of potentially pushing their bodies and their substance usage to the point where it's actually taking their lives. And um, at that point, the International Olympic Committee forms the IOC, the, they formed their medical commission in 1961 that has the remit of trying to design a strategy to combat drug usage in Olympic sports. But at that time in 1961, there were practically no rules in place about the uses, usage of drugs in sport. And the IW. AF, which is the governing body of athletics uh, at the time, they've now changed their name and they're called World Athletics. They were the first organisation to try to uh, introduce some general rules about prohibiting the use of stimulants from 1928 onwards, but there's never any reports of any testing or enforcement of those rules. Um, and if stimulants were potentially linked, uh, amphetamines were potentially linked to this cyclist death, then this is the category of drugs that the International Olympic Committee are going to want the athletes to stop taking um, because of the risk it poses to their health. And in 1967, they finally released a list of prohibited substances, which uh, mainly consists of stimulants, narcotics, antidepressants and tranquilizers. And uh, the f we get our first case of doping in 1968 uh, at the Mexico Olympic Games, where a Swedish uh, athlete who competes in the modern pentathlon tests positive for ethanol alcohol and he he and his entire team is actually stripped of their bronze medal at the 1968 mexico olympic games even though when interviewed afterwards he declared he only consumed two beers um, but he still lost his olympic medal and he's the only person to have lost their olympic medal because of uh, usage of alcohol um and at that point, anabolic steroids were not included on the list of prohibited substances in 1967 because, as we discussed, no consensus existed in the medical community as to if they were performance enhancing or if they actually 
potentially had these deleterious effects to athletes' health. Um, but as we have mentioned, their, their usage and was spreading. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's quite interesting to say at this point, in the 1968 Mexico City Games, you've got one athlete who loses his medals because he tests positive for alcohol. Yet, um, by 1966, the German Democratic Republic was administering oral terinabol to their athletes' state-sponsored doping program, and they were turning up to the 1968 Olympic Games um, using anabolic steroids, um, and there was no test to catch them. The substances were still on a prohibited list, and uh, we come across as from the mid-60s, um, all the way through the 1980s as well, this very, very large and extensive state-sponsored doping program by the German Democratic Republic, where uh, it's estimated that about 10,000 athletes were administered anabolic steroids against their will or against their knowledge, really, where they were told that these pills were vitamins and that they had to take them. And uh, they were not to tell their parents about them. And the same for the injections as well. There were also vitamins to boost their health. Yet they were anabolic steroids. Um, and so, you know, you're getting the GDR state-sponsored doping program is starting in the late 1960s. The usage of anabolic steroids is now no longer just confined to American weightlifting teams and Soviet weightlifting teams. It's now spreading into track and field sports and is becoming uh, more of a widespread problem but still there is no, no banning of the substances. They're not placed on the prohibited list because they're not thought to be performance enhancing. Um, and so we can say at that point that uh, steroids are definitely starting to be used to win Olympic medals and, uh, and to be used to win medals in world championships, European championships and other events. Just before we move off that, Alex, for you in your area of research and the obviously the extensive knowledge of the history you have behind this do you look at that as the period where the powers that be really dropped the ball with regards to clamping down on anti-doping or like how do you appraise that whole period like was it just you know they just didn't know any better it was just naive to the whole thing uh it still would have been very much a secret at that point uh, and it wouldn't have been necessarily the athletes wouldn't have been talking about it so much um, in the Olympic setting, uh, at least with the GDR for sure. Um, but some of the signs of the usage of steroids with the androgenization of the GDR women and their swimming teams and their husky voices and their masculine features at the games might have potentially led some people to think that they were taking steroids and this was going on. Um, but they weren't they weren't testing for them at that at that at that time point um and there's even reports to suggest that at the 1968 olympic games in mexico city that one third of the entire united states track and field team had used steroids in the run-up to to the games um and it's around that point where they start to realize that they their usage is, is becoming uh um widespread and they uh, start to try to test for anabolic steroids and uh, it's not until the 1976 Montreal Olympic Games that they do test for anabolic steroids where you've got eight out of 275 tests indicating the usage of steroids but at that point there in the in the 1970s their 
only testing for certain anabolic steroids, like they'll be able to test for Dianabol, for example. But there's other oral steroids like Stanazolol where they're not testing for them. There's also no drug test for testosterone. And so, uh, and also even of the drug tests that were available at that time, the detection window of the anabolic steroids was quite low and potentially could have been maybe um, in the sort of realm of a couple of weeks of detection. So if you were taking anabolic steroids, you could stop a few weeks before the Olympic Games and still pass the drug test. And so it was only athletes maybe that didn't get news about them testing for the drugs or just not thinking the test would work that would continue to try to take them during the Games. Um, so that's um, a, a big problem there with with uh, the anti there's the science of the of the drug testing at that point is that the detection window is not great. They can't detect for all substances, and they're still lacking a test for a drug test for testosterone. And so, if the athletes know, for example, I better not take Dynabol anymore because I could get caught at the Olympics, then we could just transition to using testosterone and no one, no one would have caught you and uh, uh there's quite a famous professor called Manfred Donnick who's actually got a, uh, a conference named after him now in Cologne in Germany which has got one of the biggest anti-doping laboratories in the world and one of the best laboratories for research as well into anti-doping science and um, he thinks that this is what athletes are doing that they're just stopping taking these oral steroids before they go into the games and they're just transitioning to taking testosterone and so in 1980, um, at the Moscow Olympic Games, um, he decides to do some research to see if this is true. And uh, he is theorizing this test that he can come up for testosterone. And uh, he comes up with this way of detecting testosterone in urine by examining the ratio of testosterone to its epima, epitestosterone. And in a normal person, your excretion should be roughly one to one. But if you're injecting excess to exogenous testosterone and um, that doesn't affect the amount of epitestosterone that goes in your urine, so that will stay at one. But the amount of testosterone in your urine goes up. And if the ratio of the two goes beyond six to one, then at that time, it's now changed to four to one. Uh, Donike said that that was good enough to prove the usage of exogenous testosterone. And uh, bear in mind, in the 1980 Olympic Games in Moscow, there's not a single recorded case of drug usage. No one loses a medal for doping and no one gets caught doping. It's the only Olympic Games in the whole of history and not a single person has been caught taking performance-enhancing drugs. Um, but Don Ike performs this uh, research on, these, on the urine samples he gets a hold of because he believes they're all taking testosterone. And... Uh, 20% of the urine samples that he analyzes are positive for testosterone and that included 16 gold medalists. So testosterone usage definitely was being used in the 1980 games. And uh, on top of that as well, I've also seen reports that um, uh, it's uh, just check who said this because they basically said in the 1980 games that uh, urine swapping was going on. And this is why, no one tested positive in the 1980 games. Uh, we don't know that for sure, but people who were involved in the, uh, uh, in the organization of the Olympics at that time. So there's a retired KGB Lieutenant and a retired ex Soviet union medalist 
who claims that they were swapping urine in the 1980 Moscow Olympic Games, and that's why no one tested positive for prohibited substances. Um, and then Manfred Donike is doing his research on the urine substance on the urine samples to try and you know validate his test for this test in urine for testosterone and finds out that 16 gold medalists were had a ratio greater than six to one of their testosterone to epitestosterone so it's highly likely that um that these athletes were indeed using testosterone at the time of the games and uh soon after that that's when um the test for testosterone gets uh, gets used and it's in 1984 that uh the, the testosterone to epitestosterone test finally gets integrated. Um, it's also 1984, just say one last thing there, mm. is we're just talking about steroids here, but obviously there's a whole realm of other drugs that can be used and, um, and indeed other methods of doping as well. So in the Los Angeles 1984 games, uh, the, the cycling team used blood transfusions and uh, to try to improve their their performance and they they won their medals in their home country at that time there's actually a really good documentary on netflix about this if you're interested uh, i don't think i think it's less than an hour long where they interview some of the athletes at the time where um the ioc had no and still to this day there's no real 100 percent test to confirm a blood transfusion and they hadn't actually put on their list of prohibited substances prohibited methods of doping so there was just a list of drugs that you couldn't take but there wasn't a list of methods that you couldn't do and so having a blood transfusion could increase the amount of red blood cells that you have circulating increase the amount of oxygen that goes to your muscles increase your force output and your ability to cycle but because it wasn't specifically listed as a prohibited method or technique of doping it, there was they weren't breaking the rules but in the documentary, you see, they feel very uneasy about doing it because it's sort of in this gray area where they know it's going to be performance enhancing. They know it's going to help them. It's not prohibited in the rules and there's no test. To prove. Also, the, the, what they have done as well is they, they weren't doing autologous blood transfusions where they were taking their own blood out and putting it back into their body. They were reinfusing other people's blood into their body. And although you might get a, a donor match, you know, they weren't screening the blood for viruses. They weren't screening the blood for other bloodborne pathogens. Mm. Um, and in the documentary, they talk about one athlete who uh, has a really bad reaction to a blood transfusion. And um, uh, after that point, just never wants to do it again. And so, it, you know, they talk about lying on these beds in these hotels near the Olympic village with blood bags attached to coat hangers drawing out their blood and uh, uh, they weren't breaking the rules. Um, still people to this day, blood doping is, is rife, but it goes to show that the IOC were potentially behind the times there as well, where they hadn't stated that you shouldn't be doing blood transfusions. Although they never had a test for it, they still could have said that you don't do it, um, but that wasn't done. Uh, so uh, blood doping was eventually, eventually banned, but yeah. it, it was, uh, much much later oh and also one last point i'll say there about the drug testing that's going on at this time it's only urine testing they haven't actually passed any rules to be allowed to take blood from somebody because it's obviously much more invasive than taking blood and so it wasn't until 1992 that the iaaf actually is allowed to, to, to take blood from people um at this time point it's all just urine testing um uh and 
they I'm fairly sure around this kind of time period as well um they're not like it is now where if you're drug tested in for a urine sample someone actually has to watch the urine exit your body whereas at that time point uh, that I don't really think was going on as well so that obviously leads to some potential loopholes where people could have been storing urine in uh you know different objects and then releasing that behind a cubicle to fill up their urine samples as opposed to as it is now where you have to be watched to provide the sample uh, to prevent those kinds of fraudulent activity taking place yeah i obviously love all of that but and this is a really weird thing to say but that that point in which you said about the uh the testosterone to epi testosterone ratios of of you know the 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 athletes who who failed tests you know that there are some of them in excess of six to one and you're saying it's highly likely that they were doping you know it's just spoken like a true scientist i love it <laughs> you're not actually what, what i'd also i'd also say there is that <laughs> what we now know is that uh the the ratio of your testosterone to epitestosterone is actually dependent on your genetics and you can have there's a genetic polymorphism in a gene called the ugb 2b17 gene which is uh, a gene that codes for an enzyme that is involved in the excretion of testosterone it adds basically it adds an acid to testosterone that because uh, testosterone is a fat soluble thing um, it, you can add an acid to it that makes it water soluble it goes out into your urine and you can lack that enzyme that does that then there's another enzyme that can replace its activity but it's nowhere near as effective as this enzyme and so they know now that uh, some people can inject up to 500 milligrams of testosterone and their ratio will never really go beyond one to one with the injections. And they actually have a very low ratio naturally. And uh, these people could be injecting testosterone and they'd never ever even reach the six to one threshold. So at that time they didn't know that. And uh, so having this, this cut off six to one that's supposed to be the same for everyone of every race, every age, every, every gender, every sport. Um, it was like this just defined threshold, but actually there's some variables going on that I mean, it's not the correct threshold for everybody to use. Um, now we have the steroidal module of the athlete biological passport, which monitors people's ratios through time. And with Bayesian statistics, we'll compare your number to your previous numbers. And if they go out of a reference range, then you're going to be assigned as doping. But back then, it was just a single one-off test, whether or not you were over the threshold or not. And some people genetically still could have been taking testosterone at that time point and getting away with it because they never, ever were going to go over above the threshold. Yeah. So, uh, it, you know, there's loopholes in the drug testing now, but there were even way, way bigger loopholes back then. Um, and I'd say... The most important thing as well is that although Manfred Donite was doing this research, um, they weren't storing any urine samples at this time point. They're, they were doing the drug testing, regular drug testing during the games, and that was it. There was no permanent, no long-term storage, no retesting of samples. So uh, if you managed to get away with it there and then with the science that was available at that time, then you were going to get away with it for, for sure. There was, there was no way you were going to lose your medal. And actually, just attached to that, I think the Donag test is really interesting because, as you say, it comes in in the 1984 Olympic Games, but it's actually trialed as well at the 1983 Pan-American Games. And Dr. John Todd and Dr. Daniel Rosenke have a wonderful article 
about the very creative way in which 12 US track and athletics um, athletes decided to get around the drug test is they just went home. They decided not to compete in the 1983 Pan, Pan American Games because they just said, no, you know what, this, this test might actually catch something that we don't want. So they go back home to the US from Venezuela in kind of disgrace. And then there's a huge amount of um, failed drugs test at the Pan American Games. So, you know, yeah. sometimes the most creative way of getting around a drug test is to simply just refuse to compete, which is what the Americans did in 1983 because the Donag test was, you know, something that they were afraid that they were going to fail because they didn't have a metric for how to get around these tests or what the, the fault lines of it might be. Yeah. Can't test what's not there, right? <laughs> but, but my understanding as well is that uh, when when they just went home, uh, the journalists found out about that. And that was when they started to raise an eyebrow that athletes were using drugs because these athletes did, you know, they weren't injured. They just went home. And the journalists at that time sort of thought, well, this is a bit suspicious. And um, I think that's when you start to see in the public eye, people becoming more aware that steroid usage is, is happening and is being used in sports. And uh, yeah, you're right. There's uh, the first time the testosterone to epitestosterone ratio was used was in the 1980 Pan American Games in Caracas. 11 weightlifters, a cyclist, a fencer, a sprinter, and someone who competes in the shot put. Um, but yes, these American athletes left, and that's where, um, from articles I've read, that journal journalists and commentators sort of become shocked that doping is as widespread as this, and is in many different sports. Um, and that's why I think journalists as well start to raise an eyebrow that it's not just in the Olympic sports that people are taking steroids, but it could be in the collegiate or professional sports in America, like the NFL, the MLB, the NBA, and the NHL. Um, and at, the, at that time, none of those organizations were doing drug testing. So Yeah, no, you're right. And I, I, I do say it lightly just because I find it hilarious that people thought, oh, I can just go home and no one will raise an eyebrow. Like this is a huge controversy and a huge scandal in the US because it's not that their athletes have failed the drug test because I think, it's, and we still see it today, if someone fails the drug test, it's kind of like when you tweet something that you shouldn't have tweeted and you say my account was hacked. A lot of times now when people fail a drug test, they say, well, I was taking a supplement or, you know, I was taking my asthma medication and it happened to have this one device. If you straight, like point blank, refuse to compete because you know you're going to be tested, you are admitting culpability by omission. So I think the 83 games, it's important because this test comes in and people fail. But it's more important from a PR perspective, as Alex has mentioned, that, you know, the journalists take an interest in it now that, wow, we're not even going to pretend that we're clean we're actually just going to go home. So as Dan Todd and Daniel Rosenke talk about in their article, you know, this is a huge scandal that kind of rocks American sport and actually leads the press into a more kind of introspective look at, well, if we have steroids in all of these different sports, do we have them in American sports? Do we have them in colleges and high schools? So it's the start of the kind of steroid panic in the US that really starts to hit a fever pitch in the late 80s and early 90s. But yeah, I just love the idea of, refusing to even compete because you don't want to do the drugs test which is kind of like i'm taking my ball and going home uh kind of school of thought right now to uh switch gears back to strength sports just for a moment connor in the period of like 1960s 1970s uh kind of broadly speaking we have things like the establishment of powerlifting which we've talked about on an entire previous episode <laughs> we have 
increased influence of performance-enhancing drugs in, in bodybuilding. And one individual that's influential within this timeline is the steroid guru, Dan Duchesne. So can we talk about him for, for a moment and what was his role in this whole thing? Yeah, absolutely. And I think I'll open with saying, so Daniel Rosenke, who um, published that article with Jan Todd on the 83 Pan American Games, he actually wrote his dissertation that had a couple of chapters on uh, Dan Duchesne. So hopefully there'll be some kind of historical work on Dan Duchesne coming out because he is one of those really interesting individuals. He is the quote unquote steroid guru in the 1980s, which is a moniker that he really does earn uh, for himself. Dan Duchesne is the man responsible for the underground steroid handbook which goes through three major editions in the 1980s and early 1990s. And although steroids haven't been officially kind of banned or criminalized in the US, that comes in 1990, there is already an underground trade in anabolic steroids. And it's not just things like the Anabol, when Dan Duchesne publishes the underground steroid handbook, I think the first one is either in 81 or 83. Um, I can't remember which year it is. We already have things like human growth hormone um, being used by bodybuilders in particular. And the problem with some of this is bodybuilders as a cohort of athletes tend to be quite reckless. So there's a story about Steve Michalak, who's a 1979 Mr. America, who supposedly ate monkey brains because he couldn't get access to growth hormone from a cadaver. So he thought a monkey brain would be just as good. Supposedly ate it and stopped when he saw that he was was creating some very strange facial feature changes. Whether or not this is true, Steve Michalak is known for his quote-unquote intensity or insanity approach is maybe besides the point, but it highlights the lengths that a bodybuilder would go to. So when Dan Duchesne is publishing the steroid, underground steroid handbook, bodybuilders are becoming increasingly reckless in the drugs that they're taking. And what what more... I'd just say there, Connor, oh, yeah, go ahead. talking about growth hormone is uh, at that point, you said they're taking, there's no, the way they make growth hormone now is called recombinant growth hormone, just like insulin's recombinant where you're using, um, uh, back, you've inserted this human gene for these substances into bacteria and the bacteria are making it. It's a recombinant f- technology. Uh, whereas back then, the only way you could get growth hormone was harvesting it from the pituitary glands of cadavers. And, uh, and that's what people were using in a clinical setting for people that had clinical deficiencies in growth hormones as a, as a prescription for this disease. But as you said, bodybuilders were using it as a way to increase their muscle mass etc but because they're taking um something from the from cadavers from the pituitary glands uh it they've some of these people were then injecting this substance and then we're getting something called Krakow's jacobs disease which is caused by a prion which is a, a degenerative disease that would end up actually killing them um, because, and that's one reason why in clinical settings they cease the usage of uh, growth hormone from cadavers because you're supposed to be trying to treat someone and then you've ended up giving them something that's harming them so that can't be used anymore as a treatment of disease um, and then you end up with the recombinant technologies but as you said yeah at the time Dan Duchesne and the other bodybuilding circles were even advocating the use of growth hormone which in some of those instances would have been coming from cadavers. And actually, so yeah, as you really, said, reckless behavior. Yeah. <laughs> but you're, it's really interesting to point out that, you know, I mean, in the US, growth hormones being used from the 1960s to treat um, kind of a variety of diseases. And a colleague of mine in UBC, Ashwarya Ramachandran, has, is writing an article on 
the kind of prevalency of growth hormone in children in the US from the 1960s and 1970s, if we think of like Lionel Messi, he was mm. short, now we made him slightly taller. This sort of approach being used in thousands and thousands of cases in the US in the 1960s and 1970s. And what Ashwarya has found, this is a slight tangent, but it kind of shows the ethic of HGH taking in the United States during this time, is that HGH went from, human growth hormone went from treating medical issues in the US to parents pressuring doctors in the late 60s and early 70s to give it to their children to make them taller, even if there was no medical uh, necessity for them to actually use the HGH or to make them taller so that they could be a professional athlete. And Ashwari has some really interesting anecdotes. But as we go more into, say, Dan Duchesne and the Underground Steroid Handbook, which is kind of the Bible for bodybuilders in the 1980s and 1990s, we talked about the male hormone in 1945 and how that was kind of a seminal or critical or influential text for that time. The Underground Steroid Handbook is a really important text for its time because it's giving people knowledge, awareness, and protocols for HGH, testosterone, later additions will include diuretics and other supplements that bodybuilders will begin to abuse. And what Duchesne does more than anyone else in the 1980s in the realm of bodybuilding and strength sports, because I'm sure Alex can maybe talk about Dr. Alex Kerr and his use on anabolic steroids with athletes in the 1980s. What Dan Duchesne is doing is he's normalizing the practice in bodybuilding, and he also has a public profile. By the end of the 1980s, Dan Duchesne is someone who is on an FBI list. He's been imprisoned. He's also known for selling Ultimate Orange, which is kind of one of the first pre-workout supplements. He is a media darling when it comes to steroid use. So not only is his name known in bodybuilding circles, but it's known in American society more generally by the late 1980s, early 1990s. And Duchesne is one of those individuals who's very forthright with his views. He's coming out and saying, I make people bigger and stronger we don't necessarily care about health. We care about muscularity. We care about leanness. And this extends also to his diet books. Dan Duchesne publishes The Body Opus Project, which is an early ketogenic diet, which is insanely common. I would need Alex's level of expertise and scientific knowledge to actually follow The Body Opus Diet because it's a ketogenic diet that's cyclical and you're, you know, you're taking glucose at this time and then you're, do, you're restricting calories at different points of the day and then you're doing high feeding windows and low feeding windows. It's incredibly complicated, but it actually mirrors the kind of drug protocols that he's using. So Duchesne in the Underground Steroid Handbook, I would say gives this false sense of confidence to bodybuilders that they know what they're doing when it comes to drugs. Because as Alex mentioned, there is a distrust between, say, the strength community and the general medical community with regards to taking steroids, the effect, side effects of steroids, the protocols that one can use. Duchesne's Underground Steroid Handbook, like, there is science behind it but there is also a kind of false confidence of bro science that is then extended because people in the 1980s and 1990s and alan klein's sociological work little big men goes into this quite a bit it gives people a false confidence that all i need to know to get bigger and stronger is included in the underground steroid handbook and that may be true but in terms of the health the side effects the recklessness which the underground steroid handbook encourages in terms of taking hgh taking huge amounts of testosterone, using diuretics when not having a full understanding of what that can do to the body, means that the underground steroid handbook increases the popularity of anabolic steroids in bodybuilding across all levels, going down to teenagers and college-aged college men and women as well. But it also means that kind of the health risks start to increase tenfold. And it's in the mid to late 1980s 
that we start to see bodybuilders collapsing on stage, dying on stage in some cases, and dying and then presenting with enlarged organ failure, or enlarged organs, pardon me. So the Dan Duchesne, the underground steroid handbook in the 1980s, leads to a kind of public professionalization of steroid taking in bodybuilding, powerlifting, and strength sports. The genie is out of the bottle with the underground steroid handbook, and it's for the general public. I, do, I, no, long, I no longer need to be an elite athlete, right? I don't need to be an Olympic-level shot putter or weightlifter to have access to knowledge on anabolic steroids. The big dude in my gym can pass me his you know, well-worn handbook, the underground steroid handbook, and now I have access to this world. So I think the key thing which Duchesne does is he makes it accessible to individuals and gives them knowledge of different drug protocols that is different from the big guy or the big girl in your gym telling you what they take. You now seemingly have access to these scientific standards. And that's why Duchesne is prosecuted, effectively targeted by the FBI in the late 80s and early 90s. The Body Opus Project, which I mentioned, he writes largely from prison kind of like his prison memoirs, like Antonio Gramsci. This is his prison memoirs when it comes to anabolic steroids and dietetics. So Duchesne is a really key figure in this because he leads to a, a popularization of drug taking across all levels. But he's not the only person, as I mentioned. You know, we have Dr. Robert Kerr publishes the practical use of anabolic steroids with athletes during the 1980s, which I think Alex um, will probably have a much better handle on. So Duchesne is kind of the... Yeah key figure for bodybuilding but as Alex would say Kerr is doing it for sports in general. My, my understanding with Dr. Robert Kerr is that uh, he admitted that he prescribed steroids to over 10,000 athletes during his time as a physician and um, he said he told the uh, um, yeah and this is also quite funny because uh, in 1988, when Ben Johnson tested positive uh, for anabolic steroids and eventually had the Dubin inquiry, Dr. Robert Kerr is is uh, interviewed during this inquiry, and he admits that he gave anabolic steroids to 20 athletes who won medals in the 1984 Olympics in Los Angeles. And he said that he would not identify the athletes, but he said that he did this because, in his opinion, it was not cheating. It's because everyone was doing it. Um, and uh, he was he was a physician out of uh, California, and as you said, he wrote this book, The Practical Use of Anabolic Steroids with Athletes, and wasn't just giving anabolic steroids to Olympic athletes, it would have been to the, uh, the collegiate level athletes and the professional sports in America. Um, so, uh, you know, he, he was talking about it and he knew it was happened, but as you said, Dan Duchesne was then also talking about it, um, and Duchesne wasn't targeting Olympic level athletes, he was targeting these bodybuilders and they also, because of the availability of that information, as you said, started to spread more into the general public at large. Um, have, you, have you seen an original copy of the Underground Steroid Handbook, Connor? Because I'm sure you have one in the, in the Institute somewhere. I yeah, so we, we have a lot of Dan Duchesne material in the Stark Centre. I actually own um, my own copy of the Underground Steroid Handbook. If anyone oh, okay. has looked at me, they'll know that I have not <laughs> used any of the information in there, but it's, it's a very cool historical relic because Duchesne for all of his problems um, was a really influential character in the history of bodybuilding and strength sports more generally and he did just face. go ahead just have interest in in that book does um how what does it i guess they advocate cycling steroids at that point where people would take steroids for a fixed period of time and then they would stop and then does he advocate that the use of post-cycle therapy in that book or, uh, or is it coming off cold turkey or do you know or you're not sure? 
I'd, I'd have to re I'd have to open it again. I've left it in mm. uh, in Ireland, so I'd have oh, to okay. crack it open again. Uh, it is available online. Um, I would say so. I could probably do a quick Google search, but yeah, I know because yeah, for the time my understanding the, more advanced. Yeah, because my understanding with the bodybuilders at that time is that they weren't blasting and cruising, as, and that's become a much more modern phenomenon of steroid usage where people are taking high dosages of anabolic steroids and blasting and then dropping down to low dosages cruising but that low dose may not actually be sub 100 milligrams 100 milligrams or below uh usage amount of testosterone which is sort of regarded as a clinical therapeutic amount for testosterone replacement therapy maybe a little bit more in some cases but people can be cruising on 250 300 or more and um, whereas i think back then uh I, that wasn't a trend of steroid usage in the bodybuilding community and it was much more f this sort of like fixed cycles um, yeah and, and that's correct because i know there's a lot of anecdotal evidence where people say i went on it for 12 weeks off or six or whatever the case may be and off as you say was cold turkey like yeah. it, was, it wasn't blasting cruising you say it was taking it not taking it taking it not taking it um i think blasting and cruising is kind of a a 2000s and 2010s phenomena yeah. in the bodybuilding community and a lot of that stems from the internet and how easy it is to get information whether or not it's correct information but how easy it is to get information online i think that's when you start to see blasting and cruising become a much more popular phenomenon for the average bodybuilder because certainly in the 60s 70s 80s even early 90s they're taking them and then they stop cold turkey and then they go back to taking them and then they stop cold turkey it isn't this kind of never off sort of approach which is now quite prevalent yeah. yeah. I can't, do you know if they were taking them in the off season or were they just taking them in pre-contest periods? Because I know, for example, like Lee Priest, he would say that he would not, I mean, who knows if they're really being truthful, but he said he's got no reason not to be truthful. But that in, in the off season, he wouldn't actually be taking anabolic steroids. He should be taking steroids in the run up to a competition um, with the whole idea being that you would maintain your muscle mass while you were dieting down and losing your body fat and then also using them for the cosmetic effect and getting a harder drier look for the bodybuilding competitions um do you know if they were taking them in the off season so much or was it was it mainly just this comp competitive period um and again as you say it's hard to get a handle on you know it's like the um what's around lionel hutz and the simpsons where he's like to marriage there's the truth and he's nodding his head yes and then there's the truth and he's nodding his head no and bodybuilding is often like that where you know we don't know if they're giving us the full the full story but certainly it seems like as you say in the off season they're not taking anabolic steroids or they're not taking drugs and then in the competitive season whenever that might begin because you know the bodybuilding calendar has different high points in it they would start to take steroids again and like we have really weird examples like kevin larone would say that he wouldn't really weight train in the off season and then he would you know kind of go all out when it came to the competitive season so there is this weird like it's how it's so hard to know what the when they're telling the truth and when they're not but certainly it does seem like they did give their bodies prolonged periods without anabolic steroids i'm not sure if that's from duchene or i'm not sure if that's an overhang from say the days of you know arnold schwarzenegger where he would be prescribed steroids for short periods of time by his physician and then go off them and then go on them again because again they're illegal when he was taking them so i'm not i'm i would tend to believe lee priest not only because he scares me and i also really enjoy him as a personality but i think that seemed to be the general approach at that time was on and then off but again to quote randy roach's wonderful book all muscle smoke and mirrors like it's hard to get a real grasp on the truth of these sort of things 
I mean, Ronnie Coleman, when he recently did his interview on Joe Rogan, he said that he just came off steroids cold turkey after the Olympia and didn't take anything. And he didn't feel any of the side effects that you would like, you know, low testosterone feeling, low, low mood or anything like that. He said he just felt normal. Um, and then again, who do, what do we really know what the truth is at that point? But I mean, that's a crazy story. If someone is at that level, that's their usage of the drugs. But I mean, obviously we are also talking about the top tier elite bodybuilders who probably genetically respond to these substances differently. Um, and in general respond to resistance training abnormally and have the propensity to build and hold a large amount of muscle mass. So maybe as well, they've got some sort of genetic component that means that they like in Lee Priest's case are not taking anabolic steroids in the off season, but still have a huge amount of muscle mass. So, um, yeah. Yeah. It's just quite interesting how the, the, the practice in, in usage of bodybuilding has kind of changed from this distinct cycling to this blast and cue cruising, which we hear about a lot more now. And now, I mean, people, I would, I mean, a bodybuilder wouldn't take anabolic steroids in the off season. That would just be in a, a standard practice, you know, that people would take anabolic steroids in the off season. So um, to think that they weren't doing that and now they are, it's just this change in practice. It's quite interesting. Okay, that was part one of episode three of the History of Strength Sport podcast, a guest episode from the No Lift podcast, hosted by Arthur Lynch, all around the history of steroids and performance enhancing drugs. I hope you enjoyed that as much as we did, and join us in part two for more great content.